reading and prayer this morning. You don't have to stand, but let me, it comes from Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The Apostle Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Our Lord and our God, will you bless this opportunity to bind us together as a community from worshiping, from, being, from sitting under the word, and from eating a meal together. May we honor you in the activities of today, and may it bring you glory in this area. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Will you give Patrick a hand for doing so much work? And Daniel, so much. Patrick has been scrambling <laughs> to just uh, make things happen today. We're going to be looking at that passage that he just read, Galatians chapter 3, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. So if you do have a Bible on your phone, or if you did bring a, um, a, a paper copy of a Bible, you can turn there. I want to start with a story about a man who was stranded on an island in the middle of the ocean. And this castaway, this man was finally rescued. And the rescuer noticed that he had built three structures on the island. He pulled his boat up and he asked the castaway, he said, what are those three shelters that you built on the island? And he said, well, the one in the middle is my house. The one on the right is my church. What about the one on the left, he said. Oh, said the castaway, that's a church I used to go to. And even in isolation, we find ways of dividing ourselves, don't we? But it turns out that isolation itself is largely the culprit for so much of what ails us spiritually, emotionally. We know that, but also physically. In 2018, a study by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that 60 million adults in the U.S. reported that they are often or always lonely. And this problem is intensified the older we get. It turns out that isolation is not only bad for your emotional and your spiritual state, it's also bad for your health. The mortality risks associated with chronic loneliness is higher than obesity. I'll say that again. The mortality risks associated with chronic loneliness is higher than that of obesity. And it was shown to have the same impact on our bodies as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Now imagine if you're lonely chronically and you're obese and you're a two-pack-a-day smoker. That's a triple whammy. And so here's what I want to say today. God did not design us or intend us to waste our lives away in isolation. Instead, he, attend, he intended us to do exactly what we're doing today, right here, right now, everyone who can hear me, to fellowship, to the community, to the community and the body of Christ, a community that has been forever transformed by the Holy Spirit and resurrection power. And so I want to take some time uh, this morning and just talk about what it means to be a community in the Lord. The first thing I want to tell you is this. Number one, if you are taking notes, which I see that many of you are. I'm just joking. Uh, we are a fellowship of rescued sinners. A fellowship of rescued sinners. I think that the main way in which people define the church today is as what? What would you say? 
a building. If you say to an unsaved or an unchurched person, if you tell that person, hey, hey, I go to that church, what would they think about that building on that corner, on this street? But that's very unfortunate because that's not the primary definition in the first century. The primary idea in the first century is as a fellowship of rescued sinners who gather around the cross. And so uh, this idea of being a church or a body of Christ or believers and saints uh, <clears throat> has drawn from a conceivable background, a re region, ethnicity, language. We all in our diversity gather for one purpose and as one identity, and that is that we are saved sinners at the cross. So Galatians 1, 3 through 5, if I may just read that quick passage again. He says, grace to you and, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So I just want to take a few minutes here to break that down. Verse 3 tells us about the object and the source of our salvation. We are the objects and God is the source. It's grace and peace with God which comes from God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't come from us. We didn't seek it. We weren't looking for it. It comes from him. Out of his grace and loving kindness, he sought us, he chose us, he graced us with his salvation, and then he reconciled us in right relationship with God. Grace and peace comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 4a tells us about the means so we learn about the object and the source of our salvation, but also the means of that salvation. It says, who gave himself, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our, our sins. Who gave himself for our sins. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Jesus willingly embraced the cross, taking the punishment that would have been ours. The punishment that was due our sins and discharging it. Releasing us from the burden of it and the judgment of it. And so he dies in our place and on our behalf. And there is no greater expression of love, Jesus said, than this, that a man would lay down his life for another. There's no greater expression that God could show you of his love than that he would lay down his life for you. And then verse 4b tells us about the result. So we learn about the object of his grace and its source. We learn about the means of his grace, Jesus Christ and his cross, and also the result. He rescued us from this present evil age. We are rescued from a, an age that is characterized by evil. No doubt the age we live in is becoming increasingly darkened by sin and self-worship. This age is characterized by idolatry and atheism. We've been learning that over the last 10 weeks and moral debauchery unmoored from an authority outside of ourselves. We have become an authority unto ourselves. We are now the decisive arbiters of all that is true about us, aren't we? No, we're not. And this has led to mass confusion about what a human being is. This has led to mass confusion about what authority we are to live under. And this is, folks, this is on both sides of the ideological spectrum now. Both sides of the ideological spectrum, people everywhere in every corner of our nation and every corner of our world just want to live under their own authority. And what it results in is an age that is characterized by evil, wickedness, sin. 
And it's a misdiagnosis of the human problem. So if you take God out of the equation, as we've been learning, then you will misdiagnose what a human being is and then what the human problem is. And if you misdiagnose what the human being is and what a human problem is, you won't have a right remedy. How many of you know the word miasma? Miasma, have you heard this word or used it? People use it metaphorically to talk about just sort of a toxic air, right? This word miasma was actually invented in the 1800s. It is one of those obsolete medical terms. It's a medical theory about how diseases actually spread. And that theory has now become supplanted, fortunately, by the theory of germs, which I think is the right one. And it was thought back then in the early 1800s that germs and, or, or pathogens and diseases <clears throat> like cholera or chlamydia or the Black Death, it was thought that they were caused by this miasma or this toxic air, this polluted air that we were breathing in these sort of diseases, right? Ironically, what it caused people to do is to take shelter <clears throat> in the very environments where the germs that they did not know about were incubating. This is why we get colds and flus more often in the winter. It's not because they're more prevalent, it's because we're not outside as much, right? So thank you for coming outside today. <clears throat> and so ironically, they took shelter in the very environments that were actually polluted with the very germs that they were breathing in and, and actually causing all kinds of disease. And, and what they did is they avoided outdoors. They avoided walking where there was smelly air. In the 1800s, there was a lot of smelly air. And they avoided walking outside, an outdoor walk in, in nature because they might come across a, a dead carcass, a dead animal, and breathe in that toxic air from that dead carcass. And, and what ended up happening is they got sicker and sicker and worse until a, a new theory came along, germs, which supplanted that theory of miasma. And today in our culture, it's very similar, spiritually. People are suffering greatly because they think that the real enemy to their flourishing is any challenge to their absolute and unquestioned personal sovereignty. I'll say that again. Today, people have misdiagnosed what the problem is in our culture. The misdiagnosis is that they think the real enemy to their human flourishing is any challenge to their absolute and supreme personal authority, right? Not realizing that the very remedies that they've turned to are fast-tracking them to mental illness, to depression, to enabling their worst instincts, living, leaving them in a state of misery and permanent regret. It is a self-made hell of self-rule and the consequences that come with it. And what does Jesus do? He comes to rescue us from it. Jesus said this in Luke chapter four, he said this. He said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to set the captives free, to set and liberate those who are in captivity. And we are in captivity in this present dark age to liberate us from the tyranny of being our own self gods, to being our own authority. And Jesus came to release captives from this. He came to save us to God's abundant resources in grace. And I want to give you a poem today. Now you know, if you've been here listening to me, you know that I don't quote poetry in my sermons really ever. And the poem that I'm about to quote you is one of the um, least artful poems that I could quote to you. I could quote much better poetry. But this one just really says it all for me. It's the poem about a man who fell in a pit and he couldn't get himself out. And then a Buddhist came along and said, 
your pit is really only in your mind. A Hindu came along and said, I'm sorry, but you're gonna have to repeat this pit. A professor came along and said, study the pit well, because all of it will be on the final. An empathetic person came along and said, man, I really feel your pit. A Pharisee came along and said, well, you've got a lot of work to do if you want to get out of that pit. A Calvinist came along and said, did you know you were predestined to be in that pit? A Wesleyan came along and said, you can leave that pit of your own free will. A narcissist came by and said, that's nothing. You should see my pit. A realist said, yep, that's really a pit, man. An idealist said, you know, the world really shouldn't have any pits at all. An optimist, an optimist said, look, man, things can, can get better. Trust me. A pessimist said, no, things will get worse. But then Jesus, seeing the man trapped, climbs down in the pit, throws the man on his back, and climbs him out of that pit and hauls him out of it. And this is the picture that Paul is giving us in Galatians chapter 1, 3, and 5. What he is saying is Jesus has come to rescue us from this pit, this self-made hell that we are in. And so Jesus gave himself willingly, voluntarily, and fully for our sins to rescue us from this present age. And we are a fellowship of, of saved sinners. I think when people think of the church, the first thing they should think about is that, that group of people meeting out there on the lawn under those tents, they're a fellowship of saved and rescued sinners. Secondly, we are a devout fellowship. We're a pious fellowship, a devoted fellowship. Acts 2.42, here's how Luke described the church right after the scene of Peter preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit and thousands of people coming into the faith. Thousands of people getting saved and coming into the Christian faith. And this was his first description. This is the first thing he said about those churches. He said in verse 42, Luke 2, 42, he says, though they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. His very first description of this revival among the Jews to bring them into the faith is that they became devout. They became devoted and committed to these four things. He mentions the apostles' teaching. This is why all true expressions of the Christian faith are biblical. Biblical Christianity began right here. No sooner is the Holy Spirit poured out on the masses in Solomon's temple in, the, in that portico than they have to figure out what to do with all these new Christians. And so what they did is break them off into homes where these people would gather in homes of 10 or 20 or 100. And they would devote themselves to these four things. How do we know that they gathered in these homes? Because later it says Paul went about persecuting the church, dragging people from house to house. Paul is dragging these people out of these home churches, out of these house churches. He's dragging them out because wh why, what are they devoted to? They're devoted to the apostles' teaching on the Old Testament. And as Christians, we're committed to the Old Testament, but we're committed to seeing it through the lenses of the cross. We're committed to seeing it through Jesus Christ and how he fulfills it and brings it to its intended completion. So they were the, devoted to the apostles' teaching. And they were devoted to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. These are really two things, but actually kind of one. <clears throat> the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. Have you heard this term? 
The term koinonia means voluntary association. A voluntary association. And in the first century, you could be a part of any number of voluntary associations. You could join a burial association. And this was a big deal in the first century because the mortality rate was so high. And so you, you were constantly planning people's burials. Or you could join a marketplace association. If you were a shopkeeper or a shop owner and you, you had a shop in the agora or the marketplace, you could get with a, a bunch of other businesses and you could collaborate on how best to conduct business in the market. Or you could join a philosophical association. You could join a koinonia that was characterized by uh, preparing to debate philosophy in public. Or you could join what's called a homeowner's association, a homeowner's or a house association where you plan dinners, festivals, speeches, various celebrations in the suburbs and urban city blocks where you lived. And these meetings almost always had one thing present at them. Just about 100% of the time, they had one thing present at them. They ate together. And this is called table fellowship. And they use a very particular idiom for this in these homeowners and these other kinds of associations, a very particular phrase. And it was the phrase breaking bread. And we brought that phrase into English, haven't we? And what do we mean by that? It means to have fellowship. But for them, it meant more than that. Fellowship meant that I'm associating with you. Fellowship meant that I am affirming you. I'm, I'm associating with you as a person that I personally affirm. This is why Jesus got into so much trouble when he went to the home of Zacchaeus, this notorious little uh, pimp who <clears throat> was stealing money from his fellow Jews. He was a sinner. He was a mafia boss. And Jesus went to his home for dinner and the religious and the pious were pulling out their hair. This is why in Luke chapter 15, the Pharisees have to come up to the house gate and they have to call the apostles over, the disciples over and say, why does your master eat with sinners? Jesus wasn't just having dinner with them. He was trying to say to everyone, listen, I accept these people. Do I approve of everything they believe and do? No, because acceptance doesn't mean approval. It means I'm here to win them to the grace and the love and the truth of God. And so this, this idea of table fellowship and breaking bread was very important in the first century. Now, in the first century community, the church community, they added one element that distinguished them from all other communities, the communion supper. So in the middle of their church feasts, they would have a symbolic meal of the bread and the wine, the flesh and the blood saying this is what this community is about. It's we're gathered as sinners, saved and forgiven and rescued at the cross. Christianity was born into a highly social group oriented world and this was by God's design. This was no accident. This isn't just descriptive, this is prescriptive. What the Bible wants to tell us is the church is the church when it gathers, when it has table fellowship, when it gathers around the apostles teaching and it shares and does life together. My son Hayden and I visited a frontier house in Montana a number of years ago. It was a frontier house, and it was a homestead family of some means that wanted to become pioneers, and so they moved out west and out to Montana so that they could be, start a homestead and, and get some acreage, and they had this acreage, and this home was really beautiful. The gentleman who owned it uh, built a very adequate two-story house with a living room. It had a full kitchen. In fact, I was really surprised at how much of the house was taken up by the kitchen, and 
It had a parlor room where they had musical instruments where they would play in the evenings and they had bedrooms up and downstairs. I was struck by the fact that they didn't have a toilet in the house. They didn't have any kind of running water or bathroom. And when we walked in, the lady who was there, uh, sort of the the employee who was there to, to give us the information on the house, she said, now here's the challenge today, folks. I want you to go throughout the house and see if you can spot their toilets. And we thought, what is she talking about? And sure enough, there was a little jar in the corner of every room, a little metal can. And uh, sure enough, that was the toilet in the house that they would use. Now, they had a proper outhouse too, but that was sort of their their midnight toilet, I guess. And uh, so when we came home, we found exactly that same antique jar sitting on our coffee table holding flowers. And we had to break it to my wife. Uh, that's what th- this is what that was used for historically. And we never saw it again. <laughs> but the main thing that struck me was not their toilet situation. The main thing that struck me was the fact that their front yard was literally a meadow and a garden. They had to live off of that in the winter. And so they had a cellar that was dug down in the back of the house that was dug deep into the ground and just shelves into the, into the dirt where they would can and jar and put all of their stuff. It was very fascinating, but the thing that struck me the most were the pictures on the wall, the pictures of the original family. That family had pictures all up and down, uh, they're all over their parlor room and all up and down the stairway, and that family, they just looked terrible. And I realized this was an age when in photography, nobody knew to smile to take a picture. And because of the lack of dentistry, their teeth were probably bad. I was just coming up with all kinds of theories as to why uh, they wouldn't be smiling. But it wasn't just the fact that they were not smiling. It was the fact that they just looked so ghostly, so isolated. Their faces told the story of life in isolation from others. You know, those old homesteads, the properties, uh, right in the middle of the properties, the, the people used to, the pioneers used to build their homes in the middle of all of their acreage. And then they moved those properties to the corners with other people who moved their properties to the corners. And that was the beginning of most, uh, a lot of uh, towns because they were so desperately lonely and desperately isolated. Listen, God did not make us to live in isolation. God made us to live in community. God designed our lives to be lived in table fellowship with other people, breaking bread with them over the apostles' teaching. Verse 42c, it says, they also were devoted to prayer. Notice that they devoted themselves to public prayer in these fellowship meetings. Now, in defense of private and personal devotions, I want to say this, you should have them. As your pastor, I want to encourage you, pick up the Bible every day or have an app on your phone and have the Bible just read into your soul every single day, even if it's just 15 minutes, a psalm every morning. Just have the Bible coming into your mind, coming into your heart, and talk to God, walk with him. Tell him everything that is in your heart. Tell him your highest praises. Tell God your gratitude for everything that he has brought into your life and blessed you with, and give God your petitions. Tell God what it is that you need in this life. Do it. And so I want to defend personal and private devotions. But listen, the New Testament church most often practice corporate devotion. 
When they came together, they did these things together, and, and nothing, I want to make this clear, nothing is an accelerant to your personal spiritual growth, to a blazing hot passion for Christ, like corporate prayer, like coming together on a Sunday morning or a Sunday afternoon and praying with the body. I'll tell you, man, I, I drag myself to our prayer meetings on Sunday afternoons. I have to grab myself by my collar and pick myself up out of a coma, out of a nap, and put myself in the car and just go there. And when I'm done praying at our corporate prayer meetings on a Sunday afternoon, I feel like I'm ready to have church again. Because I am so filled with the Holy Spirit. I am so encouraged by other Christians who have sat there and prayed for the world and prayed for our body and prayed for people. So whether you do it in a small group or at our corporate prayer meetings on Sunday afternoons, find an environment where you can devote yourself to corporate prayer because that's the accelerant to your spiritual growth. My friends Mitch and Jackie, many years ago before we had kids, asked Carrie and I to house sit for them. Very nice, large house in a gated community. And while I was there, we were sitting on the couch watching sports one night. They had a very nice living room and a very nice gas fire, fireplace. And I noticed while I was sitting there that there was this little blue flame inside of the fireplace. And I had never in my entire life seen a gas fireplace. I mean, I was 24 years old, and I had never seen one. And I thought, oh, no, they left their fire on. So my wife watched in amusement for an hour as I huffed and puffed and blew that pilot light out. <laughs> and then I called Mitch and Jackie and I said, hey, no fear, old Jeff is here. <laughs> to tell him, I blew the fire out in your fireplace. And Jackie said, doofus, the pilot light is supposed to stay lit. And then it took me an hour to light it again. <laughs> right? And listen, you and I, we go through valleys, we go through seasons of dryness, but we're supposed to stay lit. And the way that you and I keep our flame hot for the Lord is together, is in community, in corporate devotion together. This is how God designed the Christian life. I want to leave you with this passage, 1 John 1, 6. John said this, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, well, we're lying. And we're not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light, however, as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We are a fellowship of broken people who have come as sinners to the cross to be rescued by the cross, to be rescued by the blood and the resurrection of Jesus from this evil, dark, and wicked age. And we have come there to confess that we have lived according to our own law, that we have lived according to our own authority. And we have come there to be healed, to be saved, healed of our estrangement, and to be saved from lawlessness. And as saved, rescued, a saved, rescued fellowship, we are made saints, holy, and righteous before our God in his blood. And we have fellowship with him Evidence no longer by walking in darkness. Instead, we are devoted to this sure word, to this fellowship, and to this table that he has prepared for us in fervent, personal, and corporate prayer. Would you join me in corporate prayer right now? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful.
for your word. We're so thankful that you left it to us and that it's a sure word. And we're so grateful for all the abundance and the blessings that you have poured in our life. God, we thank you that we have been rescued from our sins and that we have been healed from our estrangement. And that as we gather today, Lord, and we think about sitting and eating and talking and fellowshipping in your word and sharing life, not only the gospel, but our lives as well. God, would you just be present in our conversations? Would you just be present in our fellowship? God, would you bless us tremendously as we gather in your name and by the Holy Spirit? And if you're here this morning and you've not surrendered your heart to Jesus and you've not joined this fellowship of broken people, this fellowship of rescued sinners at the cross, would you, would you make that decision today? Would you come to a settled belief in your heart today that Jesus died for your sins and rose on the third day to save you? Would you come to that settled belief today? A belief that bubbles up in right confession. In Jesus' name, amen.